Thank you for tuning in. My name is Brittany, and I'm really excited that you're here to check out this new message with our current series, Redemption. Good morning. Well, it's the nine o'clock. We can be a little friendly around here. Show of hands, how many of you are also binge watching Jeopardy on Netflix? Okay, it's about half of you. Good. Okay. So I've been watching a lot of Jeopardy on Netflix lately, um, you know, mostly for academic reasons, of course. And I've noticed that about, you know, six minutes in, uh, it gets to that very weird, awkward place where Alec or Alex, depending on, you know, which vein of thinking you're in, um, interviews all three of the contestants. And so uh, I find that part rather boring. And so uh, through every episode that's been on there, I just fast forward that because it's boring and it seems pointless and just get to the questions. And, uh, you know, I've learned how, you know, long it takes, about three seconds in, in you know, fast forward time uh, uh, to get to the end. And then the questions resume. And uh, there's, uh, particularly right now with the way technology works, like if you don't, if you find something boring, you can just scroll past it, right? You can fast forward it very quickly. You can hit next scene, all right? Now on Netflix, they built in that skip trailer button, right? Like this is fantastic. You don't have to deal with anything that's boring anymore. And that perspective uh, oftentimes gets carried throughout uh, our understanding or our picture of scripture. And when we look often at the Old Testament, uh, whether it's the book of Leviticus or our other books throughout the history, uh, or then, you know, the chronology, of course, right? You look and you're like, well, fast forward or skip or scroll through. Like, this is boring. Like, why would I read this? Why do I need to read this part? Well, this morning, we're going to give a 50,000-foot overview of literally more than half the Bible, the book of Joshua to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi. And we're going to look at the story that is in there. And as we do it, we're going to see uh, three things. We're going to see one major theme, one major theme, two ongoing problems, and three common solutions. One major theme, two ongoing problems, and three common solutions. All throughout what is going to cover 1,000 years of Hebrew history. We're going to pick up our story today uh, with a guy by the name of Joshua who has a book named after him. And this comes right after the ending of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so catching uh, you up, if you haven't been with us, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was perfect, and everything was good, and then sin broke into the world, and darkness and death entered in, causing a separation between God and man, God and each other, God and creation, and God's values no longer operated over all of the earth. And then God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would send redemption to the seed of the woman. And so then he went on and talked about how he was going to develop this, uh, this nation group, and they were known as the Israelites, to a guy by the name of Abraham, who uh, had many sons and a big family, and they were enslaved in Egypt and then set free by a redeemer named Moses. They crossed over the Red Sea into the land of freedom. Even though they were in the land of freedom, though, they still weren't inhabiting the land uh, that God had promised them, and there was still work to be done. And today we're going to pick it up after the law has been given, Moses has died, and the mantle of earthly leadership has been passed on to a guy named Joshua. This is what God says to Joshua. He says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. 
Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Right at the beginning here, in uh, God's instructions to Joshua, he reminds him of the one common theme that has been there since Genesis 3.15, all the way through Abraham and through Moses, and now will continue on through Joshua. And it is this, that God is a God that makes and keeps promises. He's a God who makes and keeps promises. And it is the common theme and the major theme all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And one of the things that we have to do as we study here a thousand years of Hebrew history throughout the Old Testament is to remember that there is one God. It's not a God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. It is the same God all throughout. And he's a God who makes and keeps promises. And he makes a promise to Joshua. I'll be with you, and I will not leave you or forsake you. He says, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. In other words, I made a promise. I'm going to keep my promise. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And then he ends it like this, and I will be with you. One promise. One theme. God makes his promise and he keeps his promise. So that's the instruction to Joshua. And the uh, uh, practical instruction is now go into the promised land and you need to root out all of the um, enemies that are now inhabiting the land that you've been given. Here's an interesting note. On uh, the slavery side of the Red Sea, what did God say about the battle? He said, I will fight it for you. Then they cross the Red Sea. Now they're in the land of freedom. And what's God's instruction? Through my power, now you fight the battle. There's something that we're being taught here. And that is that you and I can do nothing to earn or fight our way into salvation. God fought the Egyptians for them. They couldn't fight their way out of that slavery. But now they've crossed into the Red Sea. They've crossed into the um, allegorical salvation. And now God says, you have some battles to fight. Now, you're going to fight them through my power and strength. And the story of Joshua is this. When you try to fight sin, when you try to fight the enemy of your freedom on your own, you lose. But when you try and fight it, or when you fight it under God's direction and instruction and through his power, then there can be victory. One thing this teaches us is that just because you've arrived in the land of freedom, let me speak more clearly, just because you've become a Christian doesn't mean the battles stop. In fact, if we look at the story as a picture of our salvation, there's more battle in the land of salvation than there was before. They actually have to fight more battles now. And if you've been in Christ, you've known this. You've seen this. You've seen that there are battles to be fought. And who fights them? You do. We do. But how? Well, through his power. And when we try and fight them on our own, it doesn't go well. Now, the story of Joshua is, by and large, the people of Israel and Joshua under, uh, he's their redeemer. He's their earthly redeemer. Um, 
obeying God, and things go pretty well. They go so well, in fact, that at the end of the book of Joshua, uh, if we were to uh, go to the end, which we will, then you would see a summary of the situation under Joshua's leadership. It doesn't mean they were perfect, but here's like a summary. It says, Israel, this is 20, uh, verse 31 of the last chapter of Joshua. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Uh, the pattern that we see in Joshua is a pattern that's going to be followed for the rest of Scripture. It's a pattern that carries into the ecclesia or the modern church. It's a pattern that we saw Moses implement, and it's God's three common solutions. One, send a redeemer. Two, give them a law or a pillar to follow. And three, raise up other leaders to help move the direction of the people. It's the solution all throughout. Moses couldn't properly govern until the law was established. And if you, we didn't look at this story, but he couldn't properly govern or help lead the Israelites until he established other leaders underneath. This is the pattern of God all throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament and into his church. He sends a redeemer. He gives a law or something to follow, and then there's established leaders underneath. And for the people of Israel, all was relatively good. There were some minor setbacks in the book of Joshua, but for the most part, it was good, and it was good not just as long as Joshua lived, but it was also uh, good as long as the leaders that were underneath him, as long as they were alive too. The, the, the good followed them, and then they all died. And then there's a shift in the history of Israel. The very next book in your Old Testament is a book by the name of Judges. And it shows a transition of the history of the Hebrew people. And this is now about 100 years after Moses has died. And for 100 years or so, things have gone pretty well. But in chapter 2, we pick up the new state of Israel. Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gagel to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. What's he doing? At the beginning of Joshua, he does this. At the beginning of Moses, he did this. At the beginning of Abraham, he did this. In Genesis chapter 3, 15, he did this. Now at the beginning of the season of the judges, he does this. What does he do? He reminds them, I am a God who makes and keeps promises. He's going to keep coming back to this every single time. He's going to keep reminding them, I am a God who makes and keep promises. Don't forget who I am. Your basis of understanding of who I am is essential. And so he starts off again. I'm a God who makes and keeps promises. And he says, I will never break my covenant with you. He says, and you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall break down their altars. Two things. These two things we're going to see didn't happen. And because they didn't happen, he says this in verse 3. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. Thorns in your sides. By the way, some of you, a trigger's going off. Paul's going to use the exact same language in the New Testament to describe something present in his life probably as a reference back to this. It says, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. 
What's going on here? Well, through this passage, we're learning the two problems that Israel faced. The two problems that they faced through all of time, and then the two problems that the human heart faces today. Why do we study history? Why do we study the the Hebrew people through this? To understand God better. And when we understand God better, then we can understand ourselves better. And the same problem that existed for the Hebrew people are the same problems that exist for you and I today. You can throw modern technology and you can throw modern life and you can throw everything else over top of it, but the issues are the same. And what are the issues? There's two of them. Number one, divided loyalty. Number two, failure to annihilate completely. The two problems of the human heart, divided loyalty and failure to annihilate completely. And they're the two problems that existed for the Hebrew people. First one, divided loyalty. They loved God. They were grateful for him. But they kept around all of the other gods as well just in case they needed them, just in case they needed to pull out this God for something, just in case they needed to pull that God out, just in case God dissatisfied them for a while, at least I could still have this to worship. Divided loyalty. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus' half-brother James addresses this. He talks about times when our, um, when our hearts are, are, are divided in such a way that it's like, yes, I love God, but I also want to worship this, my status. I also want to worship my joy. I also want to worship my money. I also want to worship sex. I also want to worship fill in the blank. Divided loyalty. It was the problem of the Hebrew heart. It's the problem of the human heart today. What's the second problem? Failure to annihilate completely. What does that mean? It means we allow little things to linger. Little idols to linger. And instead of destroying them completely, We let them sit and linger. That's what they did. They were supposed to go in, and they were supposed to completely drive out. Remember what we said a couple weeks ago? The Old Testament is a physical picture of spiritual things. They were supposed to go in, and they were supposed to drive the people out completely, completely annihilate these nations that were inhabiting their land of freedom as a picture to show us that sin has to be completely annihilated. Or as Paul says, crucify it. See, sometimes we think our sin is like a, kind of like a cute pet. And so we just let it hang around. We just let it hang around. It's not a cute pet. It is old yeller. Take him out back and shoot him. Okay? Never gotten to use an old yeller reference before, but that one worked well. It's not cute. It has rabies. It needs to be completely annihilated. And so we let our sin linger around. And what does it do? Continues to destroy and cause death. And it has to be, Paul says, crucify your sin. What picture do you think he was trying to give us when he used that word? It's not fun. It does hurt. And it's the only way to freedom. They refused it says to drive the people out. In other words, they, let, they allowed sin to linger. And because they allowed sin to linger, it um, cast them into a pattern, a, uh, a pattern all through the book of Judges. This is a 300-year history or so. And, um, and this pattern really existed even beyond that. And maybe it's a pattern you'll find yourself in today. 
And the pattern is this. Things are going well, but then a divided loyalty or uh, lingering sin draws us away from God, brings us back into a place of slavery to sin. We repent, cry out to God. He's good and faithful. He rescues us. But then the pattern repeats. And this was the pattern that they found themselves in. And so the Hebrew people for 300 years under the judges were in this pattern. And it's a really interesting history lesson. Like there's some really fun stories uh, in the book of Judges throughout this pattern, right? And God, every time that they find themselves in the place of slavery, God does what God does. He sends a redeemer, a savior. This time they're called judges. He sends them. And what they do is reestablish the law of God. They reestablish governance through other people. And then things are good for a while. And from a reading perspective, by the way, if you've never read this, I mean, there's some fascinating stuff in here. Listen to this story. If you didn't know this was in your Bible, just be ready. It says, in Ehud, he was the first of the judges, or one of the first of the judges. Ehud came to him. Him is the opposing king who was enslaving them. As he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. That's cool like chilly, not cool like this is dope, right? Cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. It's a great story. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into the king's belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they broke in and saw that he was dead. That's funny. And it's in your Bible. And this is the kind of stuff that the Old Testament, these kinds of stories are all throughout uh, the Old Testament. And it's the story of these saviors, these redeemers that God uses. There's another one, a woman by the name of Deborah, who steps up and is brave and courageous because no one else would. Then there's this guy named Gideon who's kind of a coward, and God gives him some strength, and he um, literally sings and plays instruments to the death of other people, okay? Then there's another guy by Samson, really strong, kind of stupid, okay? He saves Israel. There's one guy who struck down 600 people with an ox goat. Don't even know what an ox goat is. It's not a gun. He just beat people, okay? This is the story of Judges. And for 300 years, this is Israel's history. And the judges reign over Israel, and they uh, are used by God to help reestablish the system of God and, uh, and to get them into freedom. And then the season of the judges ends. And whereas when Joshua ended, things were by and large pretty good, Look at the end of Judges, last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When Joshua got done, they said, and they served the Lord all of his days. When he gets done, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was anarchy. No law. Nothing good. 
And so this ends the period known as the Judges, 300 years or so. We are now 400 years. That is longer than America has been around. We are now 400 years after Moses. And the nation, by the way, still is not living in the freedom that they should. What happens next? We're introduced to this woman. It's a very godly woman, not even Jewish. Her name is Ruth. She's a Moabite. And Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, travel back into the land of Israel. And Ruth shows unbelievable godly character. And she gets connected to this guy by the name of Boaz. The term that is used to describe Boaz is a, an old term. I'll use the English equivalent, a kinsman redeemer. And what that meant is that a Boaz um, could exercise a right at his own cost uh, to bring Ruth into his family line and to, uh, in, in essence, rescue her from poverty or being a widow in a time when being a widow was a very, very, very low thing. And both Ruth and Boaz are Jesus types. They show incredible character and, 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 and unfold the story of redemption. It's a beautiful story. But Boaz and Ruth, they have a son who has a son whose name is Obed, who has a son whose name is Jesse, who has a son whose name is what? David. And so here you see the mixing of a Gentile and a Jew coming together under God's providence and it resulting in the birth of a baby named David. David is Ruth and Boaz's great-grandson. I have vivid memories of seven of my eight great-grandparents. My grandparents are in this room right now. They watch Reagan every Thursday. They will teach her things. She will remember them. So Ruth and Boaz, eventually, right, they have David. David's going to become the most prolific king in all of Israel's history, he's going to write some beautiful things. One of my favorites is this. The Lord's promises are pure, like silver refined in a furnace. In other words, God makes and keeps his promises. I just wonder how much of that, this isn't in the Bible, so I'm just talking out loud. I wonder if how much of that was his great-grandma saying, God keeps his promises. Or he says, I love your law. It revives my soul. I delight in the law of the Lord. Line after line that David would write in the Psalms that God was faithful to keep his promises. And God uses David to establish righteousness again. And uh, then David, through sin, because the story of redemption is certainly not a perfect one, through sin, David ends up having a son named Solomon. Solomon will know something about divided loyalties. The scripture tells us that his heart was turned by women, like 900 of them. And so what we're seeing here is this picture Listen, we, we can't miss this. The picture of Solomon is what happens when our heart gets so divided. See, the nation was still one, but then Solomon's heart is so divided 
He allows sin to linger so much. He doesn't completely annihilate because he embraces all 900 of those gods that eventually his heart is so divided and he's allowed so much other gods to linger around that it doesn't just ruin him. It actually ruins the entire nation. See, it is in this point that God actually splits the nation. There's a civil war and they break in two. In other words, Solomon as the leader, his sin was such it spread. The, the, the loyalty was divided so much, it actually it destroyed a whole nation. And so now they're broken up into two groups, Israel and Judah. And God's people are now, literally, they're separated. Both of these nations are going to end up having 19 kings. On one hand, one side, all 19 of the kings are bad. And they're bad and evil works so quickly, relatively speaking, that they end up getting captured and they get captured like 150 years over the other side or before the other side. And it was quicker because they were more evil. On the other side, eight of the 19 kings are good. They follow God. And so that nation lasts 150 years longer, but then they get captured. Now, during all of this time, there are some prophets writing some prolific things. There's guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then there's these other prophets who write smaller books like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. All of these guys writing history out and explaining to uh, the Hebrews, because of your divided loyalty and because you have um, failed to completely annihilate You're running from God's promise. But like in Isaiah 11, when he writes about the root of Jesse, all throughout it, there are these four shadows that God is a God who keeps and makes his promises, reminding us that even, even when our hearts are deeply divided, even when we've allowed sin to linger, God is still faithful. And he will keep his promise. In fact, what the story of the 1,000-year history is this, that God doesn't come because of man. God comes in spite of him. God comes even though we do, even though humanity did, it's best that God would not fulfill the promise. God still fulfilled it. He was faithful. And we get to the end of this season of history. We are now a 1,000 a thousand years after Moses. A thousand years after the law has been established. Israel and Judah are in their separate captivity. One to the Babylonians, the other one to the, um, the Persians. And they're in captivity. And as they're in captivity, God sends a redeemer. A guy by the name of Ezra. Ezra makes an appeal to the, uh, this time I think it's the Assyrian king. He makes this appeal and he says, basically, can I bring a remnant or a group of people back so we can reestablish our nation after hundreds of years? The king actually says yes. And so a group goes back. And when they get back, I'm paraphrasing, when they get back, they kind of get there and they go, okay, so what do we do now? We finally got this remnant back after hundreds of years. Now what? 
Well, we see what now. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles capped the Passover. I'm just creating a metaphor here. Imagine 300 years from now, all America doesn't exist, and a group of people get on a boat and come back to this country, burn to the ground, and sing the national anthem. Right? That's what's happening here in many ways. But it's not just a political thing, it's a spiritual thing. So they get together. Hundreds of years later. I mean, history doesn't know when the last time the Passover was celebrated in Israel. The word that we talked about two weeks ago, Eda or assembly, is reintroduced here. In other words, the body of God, the assembly, the, the nation is coming back together now. And what are they going to unite under? The Passover. They're going to reunite again under the shedding of innocent blood, reminding us that all bodies, all assembly, all um, jointness, all togetherness under God is, uh, were unified under shedding of innocent blood. There is no body, there is no assembly without the shedding of innocent blood. This is a foreshadow to something in the future. And so they're going to celebrate the Passover and it's going to reunite them again. For those of you who were with me two weeks ago in the sermon, I want to just briefly hit this. Uh, and if you weren't, I'll catch you up. Um, you know what happens next? The very next thing that happens is they ask the king of Assyria for provision as a nation. In other words, there's Passover. The very next thing that happens is there's provision. This is exactly what happened a thousand years before with Moses. The next thing that happens is he reestablishes the law. It's an interesting theological discussion that we're not going to get into today. But in essence, they say that the law is going to be their pillar. They're going to follow it, and it's going to reestablish their nation. The next thing that happens is Ezra establishes some leaders, and they get together and they're going to go to appeal to the king, the most powerful man in the world, to um, do something that they can't do on their own, which is to bring all of the exiles back. And so they go make the appeal. And this seeming inconceivable obstacle is crossed or is parted, and all of Israel comes back eventually. God's going to use another leader a little bit later named Nehemiah. And the nation is going to find itself back where it was supposed to be. And a contemporary, the one prophet I haven't mentioned, a guy by the name of Malachi, is going to write in this time, and I'll paraphrase it in chapter 3. He's going to say this, but I'm going to send a messenger or a redeemer, a savior. And that redeemer or savior is going to do two things. He's going to rescue people from sin. And then on the other hand, those who do not bow bended knee will be judged in the fire. And then the story goes silent. 
sometime hundreds of years later, a couple hundred years later, they're going to get captured again, this time by the Romans. Maybe you've heard of them. And these are known as the silent years. 400 years where the people were holding on to Malachi's words. Malachi's words as the last of the prophets. The last words that said, and a redemption will come. And for a few hundred years, they had to be wondering, is he still the God that makes and keeps promises? Or have our divided loyalties, have, has our lingering sin finally been so much that he can't redeem us? And for hundreds of years, that question would have just been hanging out there over the nation until we get to one of those parts of Scripture that we love to just skip by, to just move through quickly and say, I don't need to do that. Fast forward. That's the boring part. Oh, no, it isn't. No, it's, it's one of the best parts. Because what it does is it reminds us that not for one day, one week, one month, one year, one decade, one century, or one millennia, but for the history of the world since Genesis 3, God keeps and makes his promises. And so Abraham was the father of Isaac. The son that they thought would never be. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, of whom one was Joseph. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerar by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Animadab. And Amidadab, the father of Nishan. And Nishan, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, a Moabite woman who showed great faith. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David, through sin, was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Reboam. And Reboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon when they thought that redemption had died. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jokana was the father of Shetil, and Shetil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Ehud, and Ubud the father of Elikam, and Elikam the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And then, breaking into the scene is the promise of redemption of Genesis 3.15. And through the seed of the woman, I will crush the serpent's head. 
and Jesus shows up. The physical sign that God keeps his promises. The chosen redeemer who wouldn't just point to the law, but would be the law fulfilled. Who would establish his church so that the story of redemption would never die. And so we could be here today and be reminded that God keeps his promises. And his greatest promise is that he would send one who would rescue us from our sin. And so have you led him? You can't do it on your own. You can't win that battle. Your good works mean nothing. Christ and Christ alone rescued you from your sin. That's why he came. The next two weeks, we'll tell the story of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you so much for checking out this message. If you'd like to know more on our church, you can go to experienceredemption.com.